Hello, welcome to Mythgard Movie Club. Um, I am Maggie Park, and today we are discussing Dune, 2021 Dune. Um, I will briefly introduce my panel here. Um, actually, I might have them introduce themselves, and then I'll give a little bit of an overview of this film, just some really basic background, but these guys are the experts. So this one, I'm going to take a little bit of a backseat, try not to geek out too much about the visuals of this film, because that was my favorite bit. Um, and just let them kind of dig into the themes and the, the imagery of text to film for this one. Um, so I am joined today um, by three panelists. We have uh, Dr. Amy Sturgis with us, Trevor Beerley, and Dominic Nardi. Um, so Amy, do you want to introduce yourself first? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm Dr. Amy H. Sturgis. I have a PhD in intellectual history. That's the history of ideas from Vanderbilt University. And I teach uh, undergraduate classes at Lenore Rhine University and graduate classes at Signum University. I focus on science fiction and fantasy and the Gothic in particular. And uh, I have taught Dune at the undergraduate and graduate level and have uh, been a reader of Dune since I was 13. And I, let's see, other things about me. I um, am part of the staff of the uh, podcast Starship Sofa. We've won a Hugo Award for science fiction for, for our podcast, and I'm the editor-in-chief of uh, Hocus Pocus Comics, and my website is amyhsturgis.com, and that's me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Thanks, Amy. Dominic, how about you? So I am a political scientist by training, so this is only a hobby for me, unfortunately, but it's a, a Dune is a book close to my heart partly because of the political themes. It's um, a really interesting text on a lot of levels. Um, so interesting that uh, Trevor and I um, actually are editing a book about Dune. It is scheduled to be published by McFarland. We don't have a publication date yet, but we do have pre-orders available on the website. So I will put that link in the, in the uh, chat box in case anybody's interested. Um, the title of the book is Discovering Dune. Um, I've, I wrote a paper about using game theory to explain prescience and politics in Dune. So it's a bit of an esoteric topic. I've also presented about Dune at various academic conferences and I've edited a uh, volume about Star Wars and TV shows, which Amy actually contributed to that volume. Uh, and I've also published about politics and Lord of the Rings and Blade Runner. So um, we're really excited to be here. Great. And please pop all that stuff links so we can find these things uh, in the chat. And all of this will be in the um, description of the YouTube video if you're watching this later as well. Trevor, over to you. So I'm a software engineer and also a student here at Signum. Um, been interested in Dune for a very, very long time. Um, pretty much, from, I mean, from all kinds of different angles, but primarily just as an, an excellent example of world building. Um, and I've... Um, as Dom mentioned, uh, we have co-edited a um, volume of uh, volume of ed volume of essays, excuse me, um, on Dune. So we're looking forward to that coming out, and making that available because I think there's a lot of lot of good good uh, content there. So. Excellent. And I'm Maggie Park. I'm the director of MythGuard. Um, I'm also a lecturer at Signum University. 
Um, and I had never encountered Dune until I was a preceptor on Dr. Amy Sturgis's sci-fi course at Signum University. So that was my first reading of it, believe it or not, through the eyes of Amy, right? <laughs> um, but I am a longtime uh, fan of sci-fi, fantasy, speculative fiction, and uh, my specialization is adaptation. So I look at book to film, and I mostly look at fan management. So I'm mostly looking at how you manage fan bases in these massive adaptations. And this one was obviously real interesting because it has a very long history of trying to be adapted and trying to be adapted well and sometimes really missing the mark um, and how that all goes down. So from my perspective, so I'm going to start very selfishly with my own ideas and then turn it over to you guys. From my perspective, I was really interested in how they were going to accomplish this, what was going to make the cut, because we know this is a two-part film. Uh, there will be a second half coming in 2023. So what were they going to cover in the first part? What were they setting up for the second part? What were they going to keep? What were they going to cut? How are they going to make this work? That's the stuff that I really find interesting in terms of my own visualization and storytelling, but certainly in terms of fan reaction. What are they cutting and how is that going to be received? Um, what are they doing and how are they doing it? And for me, that part was the best. Um, I'll try not to harp on too much about it, but the visualization of what they accomplished, the world building that they were able to put forward it's been a really long time since I've been in awe of a film and I really felt in awe of this film. Um, I felt every wide shot was a piece of art. Like you could see it from concept to uh, manifestation of just really how beautifully um, Denis Villeneuve, the director, uh, imagined this and could see it on screen. So a little bit of background, uh, Denis Villeneuve was the director. Um, we know him from the most recent Blade Runner, from Arrival. Uh, so he does have a very specific, almost art house uh, imagery attached to his films. Um, he was involved in the writing, but it was also partially written by John Spates and Eric Roth. Um, John is known for Passengers, Alien slash Prometheus. He was commissioned to write um, Alien, and then that was later um, revised into what we saw as the Prometheus films. He also did Doctor Strange from the Marvel Universe. And Eric Roth is really known for adaptations um, and uh, quite well-known ones. Forrest Gump, Benjamin Button, The Insider, Munich. Um, but for Denis Villeneuve, this was an absolute passion project. He had said that he was a huge fan of this book from his early teen years. And it was a book that he had kind of kept in the back of his mind as a passion project down the line that he really wanted to do. But he never thought he'd get the rights for it because the rights were tied up in a big mess. Um, so I think it was around 2013, the rights were sought after. It was, it was set up as a project, I think with Paramount until 2010, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and that fell through. And then they were just kind of loose up in the air. In 2013, they started going after them. Um, Mary Parent, was that her name, the producer? She's the one that got a hold of them. And she said she had read an article where Denis Villeneuve um, had said this was his dream project. This is exactly what he wanted to do. Um, so they called him in and he called it the fastest meeting of his life. In 45 seconds, they had shaken hands and said, congratulations, you'll be making this film. Um, and that's that's what we we have seen now. And notoriously, Dune has been really difficult to adapt. A uh, failed epic in the 70s, 2000s miniseries in 1984. Was that the other adaptation? Um, lost some core elements um, in those adaptations, but they were able to present something that 
mostly infuriated fans rather than satisfied anybody. So I'm sure we'll dig into that a little bit. This project was a, a big undertaking. Uh, it had a $165 million budget um, and it wasn't certain whether the second would go ahead. Obviously they were waiting for uh, to see what the success of the first part would be. It was delayed quite a bit due to the COVID pandemic um, and they did end up releasing it on both HBO Max and in cinemas. Um, there's pros and cons to that. Obviously, we have a much wider access with something like HBO Max with streaming, um, but watching this film on your phone is so not the way this film was meant to be watched. So I do hope that people had a chance to see it on the big screen or IMAX or at least on the big screen in your TV um, at home. Um, it did end up doing quite well, box office returns. So it made 383 million worldwide uh, and domestic, I think it was about 165. Uh, so it's doing very well considering it was a split release. Um, so that's kind of the main background I wanna give. Uh, the other bit that I found quite fun was that when uh, Denis Villeneuve was filming something else in 2010 in Sendies, um, he was filming in Jordan and he was taking notes about which areas of that filming location he wanted to use whenever he did Dune. So he knew from quite some time ago that this was a project he really wanted to dig into. Um, as always with adaptation, we are all going to take it with a grain of salt and know that this is a very different medium. Things had to be lost in transition. If you have thoughts or comments on that, we can all give separate lectures on, on what that's like. In fact, I did one on YouTube, so I'll link, link to it later. Um, but we are going to dig into this adaptation specifically. We're not just going to compare book to film. We're going to talk about how this film uh, really encapsulated the book, but also told its own story as well. So... I'm going to backseat now. Um, our goal is to do this in about an hour. We'll see how we go. <laughs> we tend to get distracted and follow shiny topics down wonderful rabbit holes. Um, but I want to let these guys talk and hear what you guys have to say. So I'm just going to start with the really simple one. Did you like it? <laughs> Chime in. I won't moderate all of this. You guys just unmute yourselves and feel free to have a chat. Um, attendees, if you guys have any questions, please pop them in the chat and I'll help moderate that for these guys. Sure. So I'll uh, throw out a few thoughts. I posted my longer review um, in the chat box, so I won't go into it all in depth. I will say, as Maggie said, this is one person's adaptation. And you know, I was the first time I watched the film, I was blown away, loved it, beautiful, et cetera. But there, there were times when I thought I might have done things differently. There were a few scenes I might have included. Um, I think one of the most surprising things to me was just how minimalist the story was. This is not, uh, unlike the 1984 film, unlike the sci-fi channel adaptation in the early 2000s, um, unlike the comic book adaptations, unlike a lot of fan dreams, this is not a book that tries to translate every, I'm sorry, this is not a film that tries to translate everything from the book on screen. Just even the word mentat, which is so iconic in the Dune universe, mentats, never mentioned on screen. And Part of me was sitting there watching the film thinking, oh, these things are missing, and yet the film still works. I was surprised after the film, I, sitting down, thinking through, how would I have included Mentats? You know, how would I have included um, the banquet scene, which is another one that fans wanted to see in the film? How would I have included this? Or you know, how would I have made this change or Leah Kynes' death to make that more similar to the book? And 
might have been able to do it, but I, I came to the realization that I think they, they uh, Denis Villeneuve and John Spates and his team made a lot of really smart choices in cutting stuff out and not being afraid to cut stuff out and trusting audiences to see, um, uh, oh, sorry, the actor's name is slipping me, but Sufjan Howitt's uh, character, his eyes rolling back into his head and trusting that audiences are gonna be savvy enough to pick up on some something that he's doing something that he's, He's got mental powers. Doesn't matter if you know. Doesn't matter if your average audience knows the word mentech. They they know what's going on. And I think the film just did a very smart job in knowing what that less is more. I uh, agree. It, this is this is one person's overarching vision and. Yes, I would have done some things differently, and it's not a perfect film, but on the whole, I think it's an exceptional adaptation and its own thing in a way that works really well. And I, if I could just give two examples of, of what I mean by being its own thing. the way First of all, the way the decision was made where to start and where to stop, you have a really elegant arc for example, with the knife fight at the beginning on Caladan with Paul uh, and Gurney, and Paul's not in the mood, right? And so there's this discussion about the knife fight and the fight, and you go all the way then to the knife fight at the end in the siege on, uh, on Arrakis, obviously, and it's a different Paul. And he has been through things and he's made decisions and we shouldn't be comfortable with the decisions we've made and we've seen this transition we've seen this evolution of this character and to have that that bookend and you can see the the before and after i think is elegant as a way of saying this movie is telling a story in and of itself even though it isn't the whole story of the novel right um, and another example would be the opening lines that they chose uh, to highlight with Chani's um, narration at the beginning. So it sets up major themes. You know, our planet Arrakis uh, is so beautiful when the sun is low. You've already got this notion of the ecology and environmentalism. Um, they ravaged, the, the uh, outsiders ravaged our lands in front of our eyes. Uh, the cruelty to my people is all I've known. So you have, you know, the, the issues of of again ecology and environmental issues you've got ideas of indigeneity and colonization and uh you know all of these big themes right there and then she ends with two questions um why did the emperor choose this path that is of course removing the harkonnens and, and putting the atreides there and who will our next oppressors be and the next oppressors, that's part of the story too, right? We get answers in a sense uh, to both of those questions. And that's the framing technique, I think, for the whole way this, this uh, film unfolds. And I think it's elegant. And again, as Dom said, very spare, you know, um, there's, there's a, a, an economy to the way all of this is being told. But I think the clarity of what uh, Villeneuve and, and the rest of the creators here wanted to do is seen by the elegance of that arc and setting up those questions that are then answered. And I appreciated that. Amy, if I could just follow up on that real quickly, you brought up the frame. In addition, so when Chani asks who, who will our next depressors be, the very next shot is of Paul Atreides. And 
if you have read the books, I spoiler alert, I guess, for a 60 year old book, um, Paul becomes a the emperor and he becomes a very oppressive ruler. Um, so again, it just it's a very clever way that Denis Villeneuve he's definitely engaging with the themes. Unlike the 1984 film, he's definitely engaging with the themes, even if he doesn't hit you over the head with them. Forgot I unmuted myself. That's sometimes that it's even better when it's not obvious. If it's more subtle, then I I think as a fan you respect that more. If you're hitting me over the head with it. I get it. You read the book. Good job. You know, I want to see the subtleties. I want to know that you're aware of the nuance. And I want to come back to Amy to what you said about the bookend too, but Trevor, I want to hear your initial reaction. I like this quite a bit. Um, I have been disappointed with some of the earlier ad adaptations um, for various reasons. I kind of like the, the 2000 miniseries in some ways, but this is, this is Dune. This uh, really keeps to the spirit of the book. Um, I think Herbert would be thrilled if he could see it. Um, just as one example of what really, really moved me was the scenes with the destruction of the Atreides. Um, you know, the, the, the image of the, the pillar of fire, the rockets coming down. It was terrifying to watch, but it wasn't overdone. It really portrayed in a very powerful way that the Atreides really didn't have a chance. Their, their, their fate was sealed and the best they could do was to, so you really, you really felt for them. You really identified with them um, in a way that, uh, you know, I found very, very striking in the, in the way that they handled that. I thought they did a really good job of handling that well without going over the top and, um, So they pop that visual up there. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, I know this is awkward to start with the end, but you did introduce it, Amy, so I'm going to follow that path. <laughs> I really struggled with the end. I, I, I like that you gave, called it a bookend because that makes me swallow it a little bit better. But I really wanted the end to just be the two of them approaching the edge of the dune and seeing something more coming, maybe people on the horizon. So we know there's the next step. And I was really comparing it to the end of fellowship of the ring, which I know we shouldn't do, but here I am. So taking it to the end of fellowship of the ring, where you see Sam and Frodo come right up to the edge of Mordor and look out over that expanse. And we know where they're going. They haven't met Gollum yet. They haven't, you know, had that adventure, but we know they're moving forward into that. If they had met Gollum and then the film ended, that'd be, awkward <laughs> and that's kind of what happened here you know we met johnny and we had that fight and then it ended i'm like but wait I, to me i wanted it to end 15 minutes sooner so just curious about anybody's thoughts on that or if it was all right i think something else i liked about where they ended it is one of the other themes that they do underscore in this is this idea of leadership and so we have, you know, Duke Leto going, going through the, his thought process about, you know, a leader not um, seeking to lead, but being called, and if you must, you step up, or maybe you don't, right? And I think we see there at the end with uh, Jessica wanting to get out of Dodge, right? Let me, let, let me take my son and we'll get off planet as quickly as possible. And, and 
Paul making that decision. No, this is where we're going to be. This is the power. And we're seeing his decision trail leading away from the kinds of thoughts his father mm -hmm. had about leadership. And I think to see that that sort of foreshadowing of what's coming again, I think it makes it more of an arc for for Paul. Um, so I liked I liked where they ended because you can already see, mm. <laughs> you know, some of these changes here. And it's it's ominous, but it's also really compelling. And I'm not sure we would have seen what that path was going to uh, or how that path was going to unfold if we had stopped sooner. I, I do appreciate that. Sure. You know, <laughs> you, the looking in and, and seeing, you know, the siege and seeing the the Fremen coming out would have just been really cool. But um, but I think thematically, for me at least, it worked where they ended it. Just my two cents. I like them. <laughs> Anybody else have thoughts on that? I actually was pretty happy with the way it ended, or the point at which it ended. Um, I have a little bit of a beef with the fact that they had the fight with Jamis, you know, out in the open instead of in this someplace where they could, you know, the moisture could be caught. But um, I think that it represents a transition between being in the world of the Imperium and then being in the world of the Fremen. And I think they caught that moment very well because they are now accepted into the Fremen. They've fought with Jamis. They've settled there, whether they have the right to be there or not. Now we're going to see the Fremen next. And I, I'm personally really looking forward to that because I'd love to see what they're going to do with that. Yeah, I mean, this is all in the context. So for, for anybody listening in the future, just in case you don't realize this, we went into this movie as Americans uh, uh, not knowing if part two would ever happen. Um, it, uh, Werner and Legendary had not confirmed part two yet. So I think when I first saw the ending, it, it was not as satisfying because there was a not on there's a not trivial chance that this was going to be it for Doom. And the first part is not a complete story. And I think Amy's point about Paul having a, a an arc. Um, I definitely agree with what she said. Um, but I think given that we are getting part two, Legendary and Warner have confirmed it now. I don't, the ending doesn't really phase me at all. Um, it's, um, I think it's, it's, it, it's probably, it, it's a natural place to end. And one thing I do like about the ending is that the characters are somewhat settled. So, you know, they've reached a new status quo. It's not, it's not that they're not going to change and have further growth in the next movie, but you know, they're in a place of relative safety. They've escaped the Harkonnen. They're not, they're not, they're not running for their life. A, a cliffhanger ending, I think would have been really annoying. Like having, you know, Paul and Jessica flying into the sandstorm or still on the run from the Harkonnens. I think that would have felt a bit cheap, but um, I think here, you know, there's, it feels like, okay, this is going to be a denouement in the action. And, you know, my guess is that the next film will take place. I don't, they might, I don't know how strictly they'll stick with the book, but my next, my guess is the next one will take place several years or, you know, months or years after the first film. So mm. there will be a time gap. 
I just wanted to mention world building, just we've talked about briefly in all of our immediate reactions, but I know Villeneuve said uh, the first one was his world building film. The second film he's planning on having a lot of fun. Um, so just curious what you thought about how they created Herbert's world visually in this film. I thought the first film was a lot of fun, so I don't know. Maybe I was <laughs> in that one, but um, I, I so actually I, I remember that quote, and I was actually a bit surprised, partially because as I said earlier, this isn't a film that has a lot of exposition or lore dumps. You know, I think it did do world building. It did a lot of world building, mm -hmm. but it was you know through uh, the visuals. It was in the background. It wasn't. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel like this was a film that existed just to do the world building. Like I felt like the characters actually were really brought to the foreground, especially Jessica, um, Paul obviously because he's the star of the book, but you know, Jessica had a lot, felt like she had a lot more um, uh, focus in this film. So I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't get the sense that this was like mm -hmm. just existing to set something up. So I'm kind of curious to see how he's going to approach the second film. I, my, you know, I, I do kind of suspect that he, and partly just because of where the story ended, um, you know, a lot of the plot of the book has been covered already. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So he might have a bit more wiggle room to, you know, not feel like he has to get through as much material and can just kind of do his Denis Villeneuve thing and luxury and the scenery and take things slowly. One thing that really struck me um, was the use of color palettes. Mm. Um, in Caladan, you have your blues and your greens. Arakeen, you kind of have more of sort of dingy, sandy colors. The desert itself is very clear and sandy. Um, that really stuck out to me as something that kind of communicated different places and the, the nature of these different places that they're, that they're in. Yes, and no to Hollywood. If you like watch the special effects featurettes for this movie, because the way that they used CGI and green screen was really uh, like they did. So one of the things they did on the on Arrakis for the desert scenes is instead of um, you know for to get the lighting right when they filled in um, you know CGI and they added stuff in the back like backgrounds they used um, sand colored sc screens instead of your typical blue screens. And there are some technical reasons why that worked. I don't know if it would work in every situation with every different color palette, but in this case, what that did is instead of having a weird uh, color light reflecting off the blue screen on the actors, the, the light resembled what you would have in that environment and that color tone. So, it just, and I could, I didn't, I didn't know what technique they used, but it was something I definitely noticed while I was watching the film that this, I know this has a lot of special effects, but this looks real. This looks very, you know, it looks, it looks real. Like it looks like Denny Villeneuve got a camera and went to Arrakis. Um, and it just, it, it's just, a, I think, you know, Denny Villeneuve made a quote uh, before the film came, came out that I think was a, some people took the wrong way. He basically said Dune is Star Wars for adults. And I didn't, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan. So like, I don't, 
I don't hate on Star Wars by any means, but I think this this was one of the first times in a long time when I was wowed by special effects. Mm-hmm. That's why I think Denis Villeneuve knows what he's doing. I I just I hope more directors, more Hollywood studios see this and see the reaction to this and just take their time with special effects and invest the money to do it right. Yeah, I think that's what I meant with like being awe-inspired. It's just been a long time since I've been awestruck by by a film. And I, you know, I was reading all about it leading up to it about production practices. And I know they focused more on practical rather than CG and saved the CG for when they needed it. But the difference is when they used the CG, it wasn't for a gimmick. You know, it was never like, oh, shiny. It was like world, you know, and and the scale of everything really hit me that often with CG, you see things aren't to scale correctly or they they minimize things. Um, whereas in pretty much every shot, I've included a couple here, in pretty much every shot we have of something CG created, we have something real in place for scale. So you see a human and then you see this ginormous monster behind it and it just hits so much harder. Um, I also loved the way the worms moved in the sand, looking like a missile going through water. It it was much more threatening than I think my imagination could have imagined. So when they used the CG, it was pretty darn effective. But... I would also add that the sound uh, contributed remarkably for me to the world building. Uh, you have soundscapes that are are very different from each other and you know with the sardaukar the even the voices uh being different uh the music uh, these places felt alien even though the characters did not and that's the way it should be and so i i think that worked very well um one of the the criticisms i'm somewhat sympathetic to um and there's some some nuance it's it's a it's there's a lot of stuff to unpack there, but I appreciate that that Herbert was drawing on a lot of research that he did at, about a lot of world cultures and uh, political systems and religions and uh, and on the one hand, that directly informed the language he used. He was making allegories about, for example, different kinds of Islam and different movements about decolonizing after, you know, imperial activity and, and indigenous uh, movements for, for self-determination. And, and the, the words he used, the way he combined things, whether that's, you know, Zin Sunni, that's you know, parts in Buddhism and parts Sunni Islam or, um, you know, the Orange Catholic Bible or these sorts of, you know, he's, he's drawing from a lot of things, but he's also doing this in a speculative way, in the sense of speculative fiction, that's what you do, you extrapolate, right? And he's trying to imagine what all of these cultures and systems and institutions would be like having bounced off of each other and become syncretic in many ways, over 20,000 years, right? So the, what he was talking or what he was drawing inspiration from isn't what he was giving back to us exactly because he was imagining evolution and change and he was also engaging in allegory, right? But all of that's to say, <laughs> that was a long preface, sorry, um, I'm running amok here, that, uh, that some of the criticisms that I have seen about, for example, casting, the cast is very diverse but the cast on, on the one hand, so the cast does in a sense look 
a bit like the world, right, as it should. Um, but on the other hand, there was a lack of representation of certain groups, including Middle Eastern groups and North African groups, for example, from, from which, uh, you know, uh, Herbert drew um, inspiration. I've seen that criticism a lot. There's also other criticisms like the Quileute in Western uh, uh, Washington, which, with which he was uh, very involved and interested in the American Indian movement and the Red Power movement and that kind of indigeneity and the Quileute have also influenced Dune quite a bit. All of that is to say, I think one of the uh, constructive criticisms I've seen has been rather than some of the, for example, costuming that looked fantastic, but was sort of the exotic, the exotic other. If there had been more people representative of these particular um, uh, religious, racial, ethnic, regional uh, uh, populations, part of the world building who could have weighed in on costuming, who could have brought, you know, authentic uh, ideas for how to visually create this world. That might have been a way that there could have been some nods to these cultures um, in, in a way that would have had a different kind of representation than some of the representation we saw. And I think that's, that's perhaps something that could be useful going forward thinking about what might be done in an even better way next time. Uh, and of course, we haven't yet seen all of the casting because we haven't even seen all of the main characters from Dune yet. Um, but I think there's a conversation to be had there that isn't um, uh, overlooking how stunning this, this film is, but is thinking about ways in which um, there could be more perhaps tangible in some form or another representation for the inspirations uh, that created Dune in the first place. Did you see any feedback from Villeneuve of what he had to say on that? Because I can't say I dug around for it, but I did see some of those articles about the portrayals of Afghan and and things like that and the whitewashing of the white savior and all this stuff. I'm just curious if if they're aware of it. Do you, do you Have they responded in any way? I have not seen Villeneuve respond to that. I think yeah. I, I would I would put the white savior issue in a different category, yeah. um, because I think that's a, that's not a representation issue right. as much as it is a thematic issue. Um, and and I think I think the film actually does a very good job showing that this is not an unproblematic savior, even though we haven't gotten to the point where he, you know, <laughs> sets everything up to knock everything down. Um, but but I have not seen a lot of discussion uh, about his reaction to those particular um, uh, criticisms. I know he he clearly did, uh, he and his, his team clearly did make efforts for, um, you know, diversity in the casting. And I'm, I'm hard pressed to figure out who I would jettison out of that group right. if I were going, you know, it was, it's, a, it's a spectacular cast. But I'm also sympathetic to the, to the question of, you know, making the characters represent what Herbert wanted the characters to represent. Um, but to answer your question, that was uh, once again running amok. Uh, I, I have not seen him specifically respond to those, um, those, those charges, but, but maybe. 
run amok. That's what we're here to do. But yeah, I just saw, and I just saw Elizabeth's comment in there about casting. So I'm really glad you you brought it up and discussed it because I think it's one of those things that's a little bit trickier that people haven't really discussed much, but it's good to have these different. Oh, really? I've been getting a lot. This is like the big issue on Twitter and everywhere. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very mixed minds about this. So John Spates has addressed a different issue. So before the film came out, he said that he thought the film's use of Islamic terms and terminology and references to Islam were, uh, could be seen as cultural appropriation nowadays. And it sounded like he was deliberately not emphasizing those parts of the book. Um, that's it, you know, whether or not that was a wise decision, that's, that's a separate discussion. I know there are a lot of Muslims who actually see Dune as a celebration of Islam, as like a Arab futurism or Islamo-futurism. Um, but I think having made, having, you know, with John Spates having made that decision and presumably Danny Villeneuve being very much on board with that decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the, I don't know. I don't like it. I know Herbert was partially inspired by Islam and indigenous Americans, but I don't think that was something that Den, uh, Denny Villeneuve and John Spates were drawing on in this film. And I think they were trying, they, they saw that as cultural appropriation and they were trying to move away from that. So I think, you know, they probably, would have viewed a, a you know, Middle Eastern, bunch of Middle Easterns as a, uh, the Fremen as very problematic, um, as, 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 as different type of problem. And, you know, that's, that's a very kind of convoluted debate that I don't know if I really, I think is really productive. But the other thing I'll say about this too, which I kind of have, have been a fr bit frustrated, hasn't gotten more attention or recognition, but you know, most Muslims are not Middle Eastern or North African. Like it's, there's a bit of, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not a Muslim, so I don't want to like, you know, speak for the Muslim community, but um, Islam is a very diverse, racially and ethnically diverse religion. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't take the presence of, um, you know, people of the, the ethnicities that we saw amongst the Fremen as saying like Islam was, well, whitewashed or ethnically whitewashed because you know there are you know, Herbert probably in fact Herbert probably drew a lot of his influence about Islam from uh, books about Central Asia particularly the Sunni is the uh, um, the uh, Sufi traditions in Central Asia there's a book called Sabres of Paradise that he read and apparently loved it's about Muslims in Central Asia so you know people who are not ethnically Middle Eastern or North African so I just I, don't know, I think the issue is a bit complicated than a lot of the discussion online has made it out to be. Um, you know, all of which to say is like, you know, certainly, you know, if, if, if we want, if we want to push for more uh, representation of Middle Eastern, North African, uh, indigenous peoples in the film, like absolutely that is, I think that's a good in and of itself. I don't think for this version of Dune, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a misrepresentation of Herbert's work because this is an adaptation that is, it's not, it's not, it's not delving into the Islam as much. And like I said, this is, this is, a, this is an adaptation that even, even mentioned the word mentat. So like, it's not, it doesn't mention the words Zen Sunni or, you know, all the Muslim Arabic terms that Herbert quotes in the novel. Like, I just don't think the film is, you know, I don't think the film is trying to make the Fremen out to be 
influenced by Islam, you know, for good or bad, but that's, I think that's an adaptation choice the film made. If I could just jump in for a moment, I, I should have uh, given credit, by the way, for, for some of the discussion too. Um, and I have, I added the link, I believe that's going to be then in the YouTube video, but for um, uh, the deep history of Dune, which was a discussion including um, uh, uh, Muslim participants on NPR, a really good discussion, and actually talking about the fact that there were that that uh, that also Herbert was was trying to engage the notion, as you 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 mentioned, of of putting that in the future and also recognizing multiple different kinds of Islam, while also engaging with. Um, you know, how how Buddhism and how several other, yeah, Christianity, how several other uh, religions, and, and not just religions, but cultures um, uh, related to those institutions, because again, there's so much about institutions, but at any rate, I wanted to, to mention that there's a, a much longer um, and, and much more nuanced conversation there, and I was sort of drawing on that when I said um, that uh, that I, I found that an interesting conversation going on. So just FYI. I mean, it's tough when you try to say this is a representation of XYZ and we're talking about fantasy lit. There's there's always going to be some some gray areas here, but it's obviously pretty interesting to draw to draw the comparisons and just see. Um, you know, spice itself. I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Do you think they talked about it enough? My partner was real peeved that they didn't talk about the impact of Spice as much as he thought they ought to have. So I'm just curious if that goes across the fandom and scholardom. Um, it's an allegory for oil, right? So, you know, we can we can talk about it being a, a direct representation or just more of a suggestion, but just curious about your thoughts of, of Spice in the film. Yeah, I, I think, I think they probably could have gotten into it more. Um, one thing I did like that one thing I did like, and I, it might seem a little bit silly, but I think it did go a long way um, towards kind of portray giving you an idea of how strange and wondrous um, the spice is. They they did make it sparkly, um, and yeah, it seems silly on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think when it when you see it and it's very visual and it's very, very striking, I think that can get that to me at least really communicated to me just how strange the substance is in a way that orange dirt really would not have. And may, maybe relying on a few images like that might go a long way towards trying to communicate much more complex ideas about the spice and what it is and the role that it plays in the movie and, or the book and so forth. Yeah, I definitely I, I agree with that, that visual element um, of making the spice kind of shiny, but also um, in the Spice Harvester rescue scene, um, I think that did a really effective job of, um, you know, slowing down time, making it seem a bit weird. It just something, something was going on with Paul when he got it out of the ornithopter, um, when he was inhaling the... Um, the uh, spice, uh, um, and it's as I've, as I've been saying all night. Like this is a pretty minimalist film. Um, you know, like an Aaron Sorkin adaptation of Dune probably have a lot more exposition about 
spice and di- like snappy dialogue. And that's just not this film. But, um, you know, I, I think that during that Spice Harvester scene, it, I, I somewhat, I don't know if it was subconsciously or just through the, the way that the visuals worked, but it almost, to me, seemed like Paul going into like Smaug's layer on The Hobbit, you know, the, you know, in the pile of gold and, you know, kind of being overcome with the dragon sickness. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was getting that impression, even if it was never said. I mean, you know, again, everything I say tonight is caveated by the fact that I've read the book multiple times. So I, you know, I, I, I have that background about the spice. I knew what was going on. Um, but my conversation with people who haven't heard the book, I, I don't think I've heard anybody say, you know, I don't understand the role of the spice in this, this story. On a related note, your great description there of, of uh, what was happening in the harvester scene. Uh, this is slightly, slight detour here, but one of the things I thought this film absolutely nailed that none of the other adaptations thus far has is the dreamlike quality of visions, of dreams themselves, of these sort of flash forwards or flash asides. And behind all of that is this ever-present notion that the, you know, you do have a psychotropic drug (laughs) in the air, right? Um, And that's also affecting uh, your sense of reality and some, at least, of the character's engagement with reality. And I thought that dreamlike quality, which even comes through the prose, I think, of of Herbert's work, but definitely it comes through in segments where we are sort of in altered reality or altered perceptions of reality or possible futures or seeing across time. And I thought the the way that was conveyed, again, um, without making it corny or making it cheesy or uh, stepping out of our willingness to buy into and suspend our, our disbelief you know, and engage with that. I thought that was incredibly well done. And another uh, image element that we we talked about very briefly before we started this was the matador and bull. So I I definitely want to dig into that. Can one of you just kind of give us a little bit of an intro of of how it's used and and what your initial thoughts were about seeing it? Yeah, so um, I actually did a short presentation about this a few weeks ago for an academic conference. And um, you know, for, I'm sure a lot of you with the Mythgard Signum community have taken Corey Olson's uh, Doom class, you know, the podcast class, and he um, really latched onto this imagery of the matador and the bull. Um, and the more I dug into it, the more um, I've seen other film, other adaptations use it. and. Um, unfortunately, it looks like I can't share my screen, but I, I actually, there's a, like, if you look at every adaptation of Dune, except for the Sci-Fi Channel one, you see the bulls, uh, give me one second, I will pull it up. Um, so if you see, like, there's the, um, like, there's matador and bull imagery all over this film, which, um, 
which I just thought was fascinating because it's like, it's, if you look in the book, it's not, it's not a big part of the story in the book. It's the, I, I think it's count, I think the bullhead is mentioned five times maybe. Um, in the you know, your screen now, if you want to, Dom. There we go. Um, so just so, just so you see what I'm talking about. So this is the image of the Matador. Uh, this is Duke Leto's father. Um, this is from the new editation. Um, but not, not only do you have that portrait of the Duke, which is mentioned in the book um, in passing, but you have that um, it's entirely new to the movie adaptation, this boss relief on Duke, old Duke's grave of him as a matador being killed by a bull. And you have this uh, statuette or toy that Paul keeps fidgeting around with of a matador and a bull. And I presume that's Paul's grandfather. Um, so I was just really interested by, by the fact that Denny Villeneuve, or maybe it was the writers, latched onto this imagery and played with it in really interesting ways. Um, this is and, and it, this goes back and further. This is from the, the lynch film. You can see a bull's head there. Um, but what I, what I think was, ha my interpretation of what was happening in the film is that um, you know, the matador and the, the bull's head imagery in the book, I think are uh, symbols of uh, the, Lado, uh, the Atreides family's bravura and their risk-taking, um, you know, the old Duke, Duke Plato's father, he was not a professional matador. Like he did not have to go fight the bull. That was not, he was not forced to do that. But he liked the adulation. He liked the crowds. He liked the risk-taking. He liked the excitement and he paid for it with his life. Um, and a Denny News film treats Leto, Duke Leto mostly as a noble figure. But I think this, the fact that he is tied to this bull imagery, the fact that this, that, that Paul is, you know, looking at this bas relief of the matador and the bull right before he's talking to uh, Duke Leto about the Leto family, uh, the Atreides family history. <clears throat> I think suggesting that Duke Leto also has some of that bravura, also has some of that risk-taking element, and and Paul has that as well. You know, Paul, when he escapes from the Harkonnen attack, he doesn't just go into the desert and you know, retire with Chani and have babies. Like he, he willingly, um, he seeks more. Like he, he challenges the emperor. He walks, you know, into the, you know, he, he eventually, spoiler alert for two, like he challenges the Harkonnen and walks into the same room as the emperor to try to claim the throne. Um, so it just, it's again, just a great way for Denny Villeneuve to visually pick up on some of those pieces uh, without hitting us over the head with it. Really nice. I didn't pick up on, on nearly any of that. So thank you for that. It's always nice to see a different perspective of these things. Um, anybody want to add to that? I mean, I just think that's that's a fascinating visualization of, of, of a tough relationship, but also a neat way to kind of subtly plant that in there. And we just keep saying that with Villeneuve, just he's not beating us over the head with it. There's a lot of subtlety and nuance going on that to the point that I feel like you can tell he's a geek, right? Like you can tell he's a fan. He's just sneaking this stuff in. And if you're in the know, you know, but if you're not in the know, you're not missing anything either. He's still being able to tell this this good story, but have this kind of subtlety in his storytelling, which is really lovely.
Um, I guess along those lines, I'm, I'm curious what you guys loved and what you hated. Was there anything that stood out of like, oh, you nailed that or wow, you really messed that one up. And I almost swore there, but I stopped myself. <laughs> so not, I am so I, I like this film a lot, so, but I don't, I don't want to come across as, as completely uncritical or just a fanboy. Um, and, you know, one, you know, part of me, I recognize that studios impose limits like money and the fact that Denny Villeneuve's last film, Blade Runner 2049, probably did not do well at the box office because it was a very long film. So they probably were working with a, an expectation that this film was only going to be like two and a half hours at most. So there were constraints on this film and I, I totally acknowledge that. Um, that said, I do wish the film had spent a bit more time on Arakeen and the capital city of Arrakis, um, just doing world building there, getting, you know, making it so that the character, it felt like the characters had settled there and that their guard was down. Um, <clears throat> I would have loved to have seen the banquet, the banquet scene in there. That's not necessary. I realize that, but I do think the film would have benefited from just something, just spending a bit more time there. Because as it is right now, it does feel like the Atreides arrive on Arrakis, there's a big fanfare, and then you have the harvester scene, and you have the, um, you know, the, um, you know, the assassination attempt against Paul, and then the Harkonnen were attacking. And it just, it's, it's a bit too quick for my taste. I think that's like the one change that I think really would have improved the film. Um, like there are other, there are other things I would have liked to have seen, but that's something like I would have, I would have put the banquet scene in would have just even, even if not the whole scene, just five minutes of them having dinner, feeling relaxed, letting, letting their guard down um, and slowing that part of the film down. Cause then you have the, you know, the first two hours, or hour and a half, hour and a half, two hours are kind of, you know, getting to Arrakis and the attack. And then it does feel like there's a lot at the end, the chase at the end does seem like it takes a disproportionately long time, which I like, I like all that at the end, but it does seem like it's a disproportionately large amount of the film. So I think, you know, filling out what happened on Arakeen would have helped that. Frank Herbert himself kind of draws out that escape. There's, Two or three different phases to it they run into um duncan idaho and then there's another piece to it too so um oh yeah i'm not criticizing the fact that they yeah. throughout the escape just just saying like for the film that it just it, it the escape seems like it's disproportionately long part of the film because like unlike herbert you know the film doesn't have the banquet scene it doesn't have to, all the intrigue with jessica and cooper howard and the film couldn't fit all that in, but I think spending a little bit more time on Arakeen would have helped it feel more like, you know, a bit more balanced. I agree that for a film that was as long as it was <laughs> and only half the story, it did feel to me like it was moving quite quickly. And having some of those scenes, I'd have liked to have heard Gurney Halleck give us a song, right? Uh, at some point, just to have a sense, uh, a, a greater sense of what was lost. Um, so, so getting to ha have a few more moments um, sitting with these characters would have been lovely. 
I will say though that that some of my favorite things about the film, uh, I, the score just absolutely floored me, and uh, I I think the music really did help make this film in so many ways. And I also think some of the casting was remarkable. I mean, obviously Chalamet had a lot to do, and I think he did everything he needed to do and did it well. But I think Rebecca Ferguson and Zendaya just did just did exactly what needed to happen there. And um, uh, they did, the, the focus with the two of them was well-placed and uh, and particularly with, uh, with Rebecca Ferguson's work. I think that was outstanding and giving the time to her character, which is needed for yeah, the- Yeah, they for really the walk the line. Sorry, totally jumping in because I want to talk more about her. Yeah, like they totally walk that line between maternal instinct and really powerful. And, and I, I thought she handled that really well, but I also thought the script handled that really well. Agreed, agreed. And and you do need to, for, for I think the themes to play out, you do need to have a sense that there are multiple institutions at play and it's not all about the houses it's not all about the imperium and the the way that that power and the Bene Gesserit representation there that needed to be there so that certain themes could play out uh through her in particular just really well done that was also one of the costumes that took my breath away um I think I have an image of it. The the tall hat is all I can think of. <laughs> I'll see if I can pull it up. Feel free to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, there it is. Um, I've seen some criticism that uh, Jessica was made more human or emotional in the film. Um, and less of a stoic Benny Jesser character. But I, I think that's that's something that, that's just something that is a, an adaptation issue. And this is a film for general audience and most audiences like relatable emotional characters. Um, so I thought, and I thought they did a good job showing Jessica's strength, but also, also showing that she's a mother in, in a way that the book doesn't really to that extent. And it, also, because in the book, a lot the book lets you get into the heads of the characters in the way that the film doesn't. So, if Jessica has to cry externally instead of internally, that's just for me. That's just a a necessary evil of an adaptation. And we're given so many reasons to think she's strong that if she is afraid, that tells us something about how seriously we should be taking this. And and the same thing, not just as a mother, but also as a partner we have to believe her relationship with Leto to believe that she would have set aside everything she was told to do and have Paul in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that relationship also worked, but we had to see, you know, her vulnerability there and her grief and all as well to kind of communicate that to us. And for that matter, his as well. Let's, let's praise Oscar Isaac. He was great too. Do you think there's any difference, but this is just me being curious, any difference between Rebecca Ferguson's character, 60s version versus modern version? Do you think there's a progression of modern woman on screen? We want to see that strong independent woman on screen. It was a huge push in Hollywood for 20 years to have the strong female lead. 
Do you think there was an element that maybe heightened that character for the film? Or do you think that character was always that way? This just shows it. I have to think about it a bit more. I don't, a lot of that does come from the book. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think this is a film that, you know, Denny Villeneuve did talk about how he wanted to empower the female characters, but I don't, this is, this is recognizably Jessica. Like, this is not a 2020 Jessica. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some changes, but um, like Jessica is a fighter in the book. You know, Jessica is, you know, politically canny in the book. Um, you know, like that is all there. Um, you know, the, the, the part, the biggest part of the book that I don't think made it into the film about Jessica is when uh, the rest of the Atreides house, except for Duke Leto and a few select members think that Jessica is the traitor. And I don't think that is a 2020, um, 21 issue of representation or empowering strong female characters. I just think that's something they decided to cut. Um, you know, another thing I could think of that might be, maybe they changed because of uh, concerns about uh, how it might look with representation is that in the tenth scene, Paul is much more dismissive towards his mother when he's having those visions, like he basically tells Jessica, she has no idea what she's talking about. And I don't know, I, my guess is that Denny Villeneuve toned that down just because he didn't think it was necessary for that scene in the film. But um, like that's the only other major change I can think of with Jessica. I don't know if anybody has, else has any other thoughts about that, but like, I think a lot of this does come from the book. I would agree with that. Trevor, I'm going to point over to you. Just what did you love? What did you hate? Was there anything that kind of stood out for you as a favorite moment or a terrible moment? I really liked the scenes at the beginning on Caladan. And, you know, when you read the book, I mean, the book's 500 pages long. So, you know, you can't add much more. Um, but I like the fact that the director was willing to add things to it that are not in the book, not even really maybe required, but just simply added something beautiful to an already beautiful movie that helped us to really understand in a very powerful way where the Atreides came from, how their world had been, and how very different it's going to be now. They're going from parrot, they're they're falling from paradise into hell, basically. And those those first few minutes in Caladan really, really set you up for that that terrible um, fall that's coming. Um, but they give you something, they give you a little bit of a um, a little bit of a payoff, a little bit of a yes, terrible things are gonna happen, but we're gonna leave you with some moments of beauty as well. You know, we actually had a um, sneak peek at that beginning of the film. When was it in early September, I think? Like a month and a half or so before the film came out. And initially I was a bit torn on that Chani introduction, um, partly because the beginning of the book is so iconic. You know, beginning is a very, very delicate time. You know, by, you know Princess Irulan epitaphs are, are really a, an important part of the book. Um, but this is just another one of those moments when after seeing the whole film, you know, yes, I would have loved to have had those in the film. I would have loved to have had Erlon 
do the big in the introduction of the film, but like, how do you do that? Like, I didn't, I couldn't come up with a compelling way to do that. And um, it's kind of really weird to do in a film. Like the 1984 film did, and it's just like a floating head in space. And that's, it's just not good, that's not good storytelling. Um, but the other thing I liked about the film, the introduction with Johnny too, is I think it, the way that it played out, um, it, it does, you know, I think in a way that's appropriate for a 21st century that's more concerned about, you know, oppression of, um, uh, you know, you know, like human rights around the world, but also oppression of people who, um, you know, are, you know, non-white and in developing countries. You know, I think it does help center the story a bit more on the Fremen, even though the Fremen don't have a lot of screen time in part of one of the film. Um, you know, the Fremen have a lot of dignity in that first part, that first introduction. They're fighting back and they're not, you know, they're not just victims. They are oppressed, but they're not, you know, they're not just victims. Like they have, you know, they're, they're, they're savvy. They have a beauty to them. And that's something too um, with uh, Javier Bardem as Stilgar that really blew me away. Like that is the one acting performance that I did not expect. And you know, he brings a <clears throat> level of dignity and authority to Stilgar uh, that was incredible. Like this is not, you know, this is why I think, you know, I mean, you were talking about like the white savior criticism of Dune before. And like, this is why I don't view Dune, like, White savior stories are a problem and they do exist, but this is why I found Dune to be much more interesting than that. And uh, because the Fremen do have real agency and they do are, they are, you know, they're not just waiting for Paul passively. They, there's a real dignity to them and there's a real power to them. Like, you know, Javier Bardem walks in that room, I still are like, he owns that room. Um, and yeah, so I think the introduction helped set the Fremen up. That was one of my favorite scenes when he just busts in there because it, it we also went right there with world building for me because the, like immediately we had social mores and they were presented and broken and enforced all in the same 30 seconds and I was in a culture I didn't understand and by the end of the scene I understood it a whole lot more and I respected it a lot so to be able to convey that through one character in one scene I thought that was fantastic and yeah come complete with the uh, the nuance and the subtlety that we've been talking about a lot. I thought Javier Bardem was just brilliant. I think what particularly moved me about that scene was that he looked tired. He looked mm. like he had, you know, he's part of a people who've just been at the end of a knife for all their life and they're running and they're just tired. And he wants something, he wants an end to that or a transformation or something. He wants something different than that. And you really get that in that very short scene, so yeah. His delivery of that line that honor demands I be elsewhere, you know, like I, the, the clock's running and I've got too many things to be doing here at once, but I just needed to come and see you. that the exhaustion there was amazing. But I, I also agree with with the power of his performance and also what it told us about Leto, his reaction to that and how suddenly the room changes and he lets it change. And he, he you know, that, that says a, there was just multiple classes on leadership within that one scene. And so much of that came from the performances of the actors. What about Harkonnen in the same breath while we're talking about interesting performances? Skarsgård, did, 
that visually hit how you thought it would hit? I wasn't very impressed with the uh, the way they did uh, Baron Harkonnen. No. I just, he's just there. I mean, he's kind of menacing and kind of sinister, but I just think they could have done a lot more with his character to make him really portray the that sinister presence that he is in the book. Yeah, unfortunately, this is another one of my very few nitpicks with the film. And that I, I don't think Skarsgård did a bad job by any means, but like I think this is the vision of Baron Harkonnen that Denny Villeneuve had. Like he succeeded in translating his vision to the screen. I, th I think the, the most effective Baron I've seen is one who's less of a monster and more of a very canny statesman who just doesn't have a moral compass. Um, uh, I thought the Baron, the Baron and the Lynch version, I, I hate partially because he has those pustules like, and they make a really big deal of him looking sick, being a psychopath and like raping a, a manservant, which is very disturbing for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, but I, 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 the, I think my favorite depiction of the Baron is actually the sci-fi channel version, um, because that's a Baron who is very clearly a very smart. He is in control of himself. He will like, he indulges in like eating and, you know, his passions, but he's also like, he knows what he's doing. He, like, he is, um, you know, he's the threat. And I, I, the, the Harkonnens in this movie too. One thing I don't know, I don't know how they're going to address this, but the fact that the Harkonnens in the book have red hair is kind of important because of um, what it suggests about um, Jessica's ancestry, namely that's like, you know, spoiler alert, like she was uh, the Baron's daughter and that, that's supposed to matter. But, and I, I don't, if the Harkonnens are all bald, I actually don't know how the film is going to address that. If, if, uh, Someone in the chat said maybe Jessica's secretly bald and wearing a wig. <laughs> I like that, that. Could be, that, that could be how they address it. <laughs> we still have to see another Harkonnen. So, you know, uh, there's still time for Sting to come well, back. We've got Bond and all <laughs> the foot soldiers, and they're all bald. So maybe Sting is the one Harkonnen <laughs> with red, flaming red hair. The singular one exemplar. <laughs> I. I will say I, I agree with everything that's been said here, but um, but I appreciated the how limited his screen time was, and I think part of of um, that helps show us that this isn't a traditional story where you have the big good and the big bad, right? And and the hero and the the evil character. And and it's so easy in adaptations, um, as has already been alluded to, you know, to, to make the Baron that way. If if you say who the, who's the villain in Dune, there are a lot of them, right? It's this is a there are people who are complicit in so many things there are people working for their own ends or for ends that are ignoble or who are simply trying to survive and do what's necessary and the restraint in showing him i think helps uh not 
play into the idea that he is the one big bad that we've got to look out for and everybody else is on the side of the angels because that's not the story that's, that's really there. And so I, I appreciate the fact that it didn't become um, his show uh, because thematically it shouldn't be, if that makes any sense. Or at least that's my perspective. No, I definitely agree with that. Like in the screen time, the amount of screen time that Baron had didn't bother me so much. Just the, you know, it, you know, I think like you don't, he doesn't, you know, he's a, he's a presence. Like he doesn't really say anything though. Like he, he has lines, um, except for the, like the last thing I thought he had some, you know, good moments, but he mostly just kind of grumbles and says it's my dune or like, you know, the trade is going to fall into the trap. Like you don't see that conniving mm. political mind of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought he kind of served his purpose. He moved things along and did what he needed to do to get the action moving again, which is fine. You know, that's definitely a track that you have to take in adaptation. Sometimes you just need a character to move things forward. So they didn't focus as much on his character arc, perhaps, and the depth and the nuances with him because they were focusing more on our lens character, Atreides, and, and moving that forward. So he really just kind of served the purpose, but it was effective and visually he made an impact if you had asked me what was the creepiest part of the film that would probably be my answer but i don't know if that's what they were really had to go for you know he he didn't necessarily need to be the creepy factor he just had to move things along i know we have to wrap up soon so i i I feel like we just started skimming the surface this is always (laughs) the problem with panel conversations but um, I do hope that there's comments on the YouTube and we'll obviously keep an eye on those. So if, if people do put comments into that uh, video, we'll we'll do our best to respond to them and things. And hey, I'm always up for a round two of this before part two comes out. We could always do a, you know, a pre-chat. Um, but leading into part two, is there something that you're really excited to see, nervous about, just going to sit back and watch? You're done and washing your hands of this version. Anything like that? I have a favorite character that I would like to see, and that is Hara. Um, I just read, just finished rereading the book, and I was really very intrigued by her character. She's she kind of represents the part of the Fremen that are ready for something different, and she knows that things have to change. Um, she takes care of Alia and really loves her and, and, you know, despite her strangeness. Um, and, you know, she knows that, that, that ways change and she knows this even before Stilgard does. So it would be interesting to, to have her in the next movie. I maybe too small of a character to fit into a three hour movie, but, um, I think it'd be interesting to see her. I think there are two things I'm going to be looking out for. Um, so first, as we've already discussed, the Paul is uh, Paul's arc is not of a hero. It's more of a um, you know, it's more of a warning against heroism. Like he is the Paul, he's the the Michael Corleone of the Dune universe. Like he's the good kid who becomes the gang the gang lord and. Um, Denny Villeneuve seems to get that. I've been really happy with how part one handles that. And Denny Villeneuve has talked about this interview, so he gets it. But the book deals with this arc very subtly. It's not until Dune Messiah 
when Frank Herbert really hits you over the head with the theme. So I'm, I'm kind of, I want to see if like, I don't know if Danny Villeneuve was planning on bringing some of that darker tone to, to from Dune Messiah into Dune. I mean, Villeneuve has said he wants to adapt Dune Messiah. So it's possible that we'll just get Dune mm-hmm. Messiah as well. And let's cross our fingers for that. <laughs> uh, but again, but like, will we see that a bit more heavily foreshadowed in the second half of this, the, the movie? And the, the other thing I wanna, I'm gonna look out for is, you know, many people who love Dune think the ending is a bit dissatisfying and that just kind of ends with Paul becoming emperor. And it just, it seems like a bit sudden and um, just out there. And, you know, I do like the ending to the novel, but I could ima- I could easily imagine an adaptation doing something different with the ending, mm. not radically revising it, but just doing something to put a bit more of an exclamation point on the ending. And so, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be curious, I'll, I'll be, I'll, let's see what, how uh, Denny Villeneuve handles that. Definitely risky in an adaptation, but it's certainly happened before and wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> how about you, Amy? I'm really looking forward to getting into the Fremen uh, society and seeing it from the inside out. I'm, I'm anxious to see how that plays out and who we get to meet and the, you know, everything from, from uh, the stage setting, you know, how, how all that's put together, the world building from, from the Fremen perspective uh, or, or depicting the Fremen is what I'm looking forward to. And also Alia, I'm, I'm fascinated by that part of uh, the, the book and it's been done in different ways and different adaptations thus far. And the, the strangeness of, of, her uh, both both prenatal and and post birth um, is I'm going to be interested in seeing how visually that is told because again I think the the way dreams and visions and other states of reality have been depicted so far are, are remarkable. He's got a great handle on communicating that visually, so I'm looking forward to seeing how that translates into her birth and uh, and what all that means. And we've got a question here. What do people think about the time jump? Part one ends close enough to the time jump that it seems like it'd be difficult to make the transition smoothly. Any thoughts? I guess that the movie, in in real world, this movie is being filmed at least two years after the first part was filmed. My guess is that that's just gonna be the time jump. I don't think they're gonna necessarily have to address it. Um, They're just gonna say, it's just going to be a, several years later. It'd be interesting to see where they pick up and, and how they fill in that gap for us. I think the part I'm most looking forward to is just adaptation wise um, is style that sometimes you see a real disconnect between part one and part two, especially if a studio is uncertain about the success of a part one. You know, it might've been a bit more controlled. It might've been a bit less funded. I don't really think this was, this had a, a pretty good budget. And I think they had enough faith in Villeneuve to, to really let him exercise his creative outlook. And I hope that continues for the second one, because I really do think that was the strength of this satisfying the fans, but also introducing it to a whole new audience that didn't know Dune. So all of a sudden people are okay with this story. You know, they might come back for part two. So I hope they just allow him to continue with that artistic freedom and and don't get all grabby grabby as we've seen in many other (laughs) DC adaptations. And Dune Messiah. And what was that, sorry? 
Oh, you're on mute. Uh, also, let him to make let him make Dune Messiah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be done. And you know, you you just brought up something about uh, uh, the book too. I I really do think this is one of those adaptations that will like Fellowship of the Ring send viewers back to the books. Mm-hmm. Um, viewers who who have you know read it ages ago and remember now why they liked it and want to go back but especially viewers who see it and then want to understand what they saw in a in a more profound way and that is one of personally one of the signs for me of a, of a successful adaptation that it does its own thing coherently uh, but also that it sends people back to the source material Definitely. I mean, and you can tell, you know, just thinking about the casting too, they're not just pitching this to the people that think Timothy Chalamet is, is, a, is a young god. You know, they're not just going for the fans of Zendaya. They're, they're really paying attention to the audience that those people have, but really utilizing them as the characters that they portray. And I think that strength is what's going to bring them back to the source material. You know, I'm sure there are movie tie-in book covers now, but it's not like it's Zendaya's face smack in the middle. It's it's much more representative of the text. Um, so yeah, I, I think they handled that quite well, and, and hopefully that does bring them back to the to the text. Makes me want to read it again. It's been a few years. It's back in the bestsellers lists. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, we definitely have to do this again. So because of all of your schedules, I'll make sure I put it in the books now for 2023. Uh, <laughs> but thank you guys so much. Are there any final thoughts you want to add in here or should we just sign it off? Thank you so much for coming along. Really appreciate it. And to all of you who came live to this, and if you watch it later, uh, we appreciate that as well. And we'll put links um, on the YouTube. It should be up the next week. We'll put links on the YouTube chat um, to all the articles we've referenced and anything else that we think you might want to geek out about. And I hope you tune in for our uh, next Mythgard Movie Club um, and certainly for any chats that we do with these guys in the future for Dune. So thanks very much. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank yeah. you too. Take care.